Almost heaven, West Virginia. Blue Ridge Mountains, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees. Younger than the mountains, blowing like a breeze. Even if you have no idea what or where West Virginia is, you have almost certainly heard one of the state's official songs, Take Me Home, Country Roads. Since John Denver released the song in 1971, it has sold millions of copies worldwide. While I'm sure you know the song, what you might not know is that the song was written and first performed in my hometown of Washington, D.C. The song got its start as Bill Danoff and his then-wife, Taffy Nevere, were traveling up Clopper Road in Maryland to a family reunion in Gaithersburg. Back in the early 70s, that truly was a country road. Having never been to West Virginia, they thought it sounded exotic and far away. Danoff knew John Denver because, while a student at Georgetown University, he had worked at popular Georgetown music club The Cellar Door. On the night of December 29, 1970, John had played a show at the cellar door, and Bill and Taffy invited him back to jam at their place. Denver got into a car accident on the way and broke his finger. Undeterred, John made it to the Danoffs, and I'm sure he was forever glad that he did. They played a song for him that night they had been working on, called Take Me Home, Country Roads. They hoped to sell the song to Johnny Cash, but when Denver heard it, he felt he had to have it. They worked on it through the night and debuted it the next night at the cellar door. As everyone there that night remembers it, it got one of the longest ovations in cellar door history. They knew they were on to something. They recorded the song in New York just a few weeks later. By August of that year, it had sold its first million copies. It went on to be one of Denver's biggest hits, sold millions of copies, and became the official song of West Virginia University. Bill Danoff would go on to write 11 more songs for Denver. He and wife Taffy would have a hit of their own when their Starland vocal band recorded Afternoon Delight, a song which got its name, though not its content, from the happy hour menu at another Georgetown institution, Clyde's. Starland Vocal Band would play that song when they had the opportunity to open for John Denver several years later at a venue slightly larger than the cellar door. They opened for him at Madison Square Garden in New York. In 2014, the West Virginia legislature approved Take Me Home Country Roads as an official state song. The campaign was spearheaded by a woman named Dreama Denver, who was not related to John. She is, however, the wife of longtime West Virginia resident and star of Gilligan's Island, the late Bob Denver. It was also the first song I played as I set out from the city the song had been written in to the state it was written about. Take me home, country roads, to the place I belong, West Virginia. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every time. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of American Anthology. 
This is your host, Mike Harding, and it is truly a pleasure to have you with me today. This week, I'm coming to you from wild and wonderful West Virginia. Over the last few weeks, I've been traveling around the east side of the mountain state in search of the stories I'll share with you today. I've been struck by the subtle beauty I've found here. Waterfalls, white-tailed deer darting away from me into the woods, picturesque railroad towns, and the sweet sound of the mandolin will stay with me for a long time. It's been an amazing place to start my slow tour around America, and I'm grateful. In 1748, King George II granted the Ohio Company, a land speculation company from Virginia, 500,000 acres between the Kanawha River and the Monongahela. The Ohio Company counted Peter Jefferson, father of Thomas Jefferson, and founding father George Mason among them. Their plan to settle the area was interrupted by the French and Indian War, and then by Pontiac's Rebellion. When things quieted down, plans for a new colony ramped up. The colony was originally to be called Pittsylvania, but the name was soon changed to Vandalia to honor Queen Charlotte's Vandalic German tribal roots. The outbreak of the American Revolution further hindered the formation of a new colony. But settlers in the region would petition the Continental Congress to recognize them as a new province called West Sylvania. Because this proposed area was claimed by Virginia and Pennsylvania, both very powerful colonies, the petition was blocked. After the Declaration of Independence, a proposal to be added as the 14th state would also be blocked. It would then be almost 100 years before this idea would resurface. On April 17, 1861, the state of Virginia seceded from the United States and joined the Confederacy. Nearly all the delegates from the area west of the Allegheny Mountains voted against secession. They said they could not be bullied into treason. 27 northwestern counties sent representatives to Wheeling in May to discuss their plan. Since secession had to be ratified by referendum, the Wheeling Convention decided to wait and see if secession passed before acting further. A man named John Carlisle called for creation of a state called New Virginia, but was quickly shut down. When secession was passed by referendum, a second Wheeling Convention was called. 32 western counties sent delegates, as did, interestingly, Alexandria and Fairfax counties, the two northern Virginia counties closest to Washington, D.C. This convention created the restored Virginia government, loyal to the Union, essentially seceding from Confederate Virginia. They also declared the existing government in Richmond void, stating that by committing their treasonous acts, they had no right to their offices. The convention selected new officers to the Virginia state government and elected Francis Pierpont governor. Abraham Lincoln recognized the restored government of Virginia and allowed two senators and five congressmen from these western counties to serve in Washington, representing the state of Virginia. Later that year, a referendum was called to form a new state to be called Canal. Voter approval called for a state constitution to be written, but by now the name had been reconsidered and West Virginia was chosen. 
West Virginia was admitted as a state on June 20, 1863, the date which is printed on the state seal and flag. Interestingly, Francis Pierpont still considered himself governor of the restored Virginia, so he moved his government to Alexandria for the rest of the war. At the end of the war, Pierpont would remain governor of Virginia and move to Richmond. Eventually, he would move back home to West Virginia, where he served one term in the West Virginia House of Delegates. Pierpont was chosen by the state of West Virginia as one of the two statues each state is allowed in the U.S. Capitol Hall of Statues. He is often referred to as the father of West Virginia. I hear footsteps slowly walking as they gently walk across a lonely floor. Maria Isabella Boyd was born in the Bunker Hill area of Berkeley County, Virginia, on May 9, 1844. Belle, as she was called then and is remembered now, was the oldest of eight children, born to Benjamin and Mary Boyd. When Belle was seven, Benjamin moved the family to Martinsburg, where he would build a stately home and store at 126 East Race Street. The house was beyond their means, but the Boyds hoped having such a house would help catapult them into Martinsburg society. Belle, as a child, was a headstrong and mischievous tomboy. When she was 10, she was expelled from school, and to not leave any questions as to the finality of this decision, her teacher carried Belle's desk to the Boyd's house and deposited it on the doorstep. When Belle was 11, her parents were entertaining guests at their house, and she was told she was too young to attend. Well, Belle was not happy to hear this, and a short while after she was sent to bed, her parents and their guests heard a tremendous commotion in the front hallway. They looked up to see Belle riding her horse straight into the house. She defiantly looked at her parents and explained the horse was 22 and therefore old enough to be there and to be her chaperone. Well, the Boyds had had enough, so they sent Belle away to boarding school at Mount Washington Female College in Baltimore. Surprisingly, perhaps, she took to her studies, but did not give up her mischievous ways. I've heard you can still see her initials carved in a windowsill of the main building there, though it's now part of Loyola. In the winter of 1860-61, she graduated early and entered the life of a debutante in nearby Washington, D.C. She enjoyed her time in Washington and was courted by Clifford McVeigh, a dashing young lieutenant from Virginia. When Virginia seceded from the Union in April of 1861, they would part ways. They wouldn't see each other for two years, when they would reunite in a federal prison very close to where they once casually strolled together. Bell returned home to Martinsburg, quote, enthusiastic in my love for my country, the South, end quote. Her father, Benjamin, now 44, was sympathetic to the cause, enlisting as a private in the Virginia Army. He had been offered an officer's commission, but turned it down so that someone who needed the money more could have it instead. Bell highly approved of her father's decisions 
which further solidified her Confederate sympathies. In the first days of July, 1861, the Union Army entered and occupied Martinsburg. July 4th, being Independence Day, the officers allowed some leniency, and much drinking and rabble-rousing ensued. At some point, a group of Union enlisted men caught wind that Bell had Confederate flags in her room and stormed into her house. Minutes before they arrived, the flags were pulled down and burned, and therefore the search turned up nothing. Undeterred, the soldiers wanted to hoist a Union flag above their house. Bell's mother Mary intervened and told them, quote, Every member of this household will die before that flag is raised over us. One soldier, Private Frederick Martin of the 7th Pennsylvania Volunteers, became abusive. Bell could stand this intrusion no longer. She drew a pistol, aimed, and shot him dead. Bell would later write about the incident, quote, Shall I be ashamed to confess that I recall without one shadow of remorse the act by which I saved my mother from insult, perhaps from death, that the blood I then shed has left no stain on my soul, imposed no burden upon my conscience? End quote. A court agreed with her, and she was acquitted, but sentries were posted at her house. Bell took to flirting with the young sentries and used her youth and perceived innocence to coax sensitive information from them. She then used her slave Eliza Hopewell and her young neighbors to smuggle this information to Confederate generals P.T. Beauregard and Thomas Stonewall Jackson. Her life as a spy had begun. Soon thereafter, one of her correspondences was intercepted, and Bell was brought before the commanding officer of the nearby camp. When he asked Bell if she knew she could be sentenced to death for what she had done, Bell smiled, curtsied deeply, said, Thank you, gentlemen of the jury, and walked out. General Stonewall Jackson took a liking to Bell and was impressed with her bravery. In 1862, he awarded her the Southern Cross of Honor and made her an honorary captain and aide-de-camp of the Confederacy. 1863 was not a good year for Bell. She was arrested six times and imprisoned twice. The first time, she was basically put under house arrest in Baltimore, but the second time, she was sent to the old Capitol Prison in Washington, D.C. As an interesting side note, the old Capitol Prison had been built to house the U.S. Congress after the British had burned the Capitol down during the War of 1812, hence its name, the Old Capitol Prison. After her release, she boarded the blockade runner Greyhound in an attempt to carry messages to London. She was part of a plan to enlist British support for the Confederacy. The boat was overtaken, and Bell once again found herself under arrest. Her captor, Ensign Sam Harding, to whom I am not related, was smitten and proposed to Bell. He promised to join the Confederacy if she would marry him and helped her escape. A few months later, she was recaptured and banished from the United States. She went to Canada, and then on to England, where she would marry Sam Harding. In 1866, after the war had ended, amnesty was declared in the United States, and Belle and Sam returned home. She divorced Sam 
and began touring as an actress. In 1869, Bell would remarry, interestingly, to another Union officer, Lieutenant Colonel John Hammond. They would stay married for 15 years and have four children. In 1885, Bell married her third and final husband, Ohio-born actor Nathaniel High, who was 17 years her junior. She toured the country, giving lectures of her life as a Confederate spy. On June 11, 1900, the infamous Confederate spy, La Belle Rebelle, Cleopatra of the Secession, the Siren of the Shenandoah, dropped dead as dramatically as she had lived on stage in Kilbourne City, Wisconsin. Though I may have disagreed with her cause, I admire her spirit, her tenacity, and her bold character. The rebel Joan of Arc was 57. Sitting alone in a quiet National Park picnic area on the banks of the New River, across from the near ghost town of Thurmond, I close my eyes and hear nothing but the rustle of the leaves. But if I listen closer, I mean really listen, I can convince myself that that sound is actually the swish of cards being shuffled. To that, my mind's ear adds the rattle of dice and the clink of ice being dropped into a highball glass. From there, it's not too far a stretch to imagine laughter. An orchestra is playing. I can smell cigar smoke. I open my eyes, and I can see it in front of me for just a split second, and then it's gone. You would never know it's sitting there today, but on this site from 1901 until 1930 sat one of the most infamous hotels in West Virginia history the Waldorf of the mountains, the coal fields of Storia, Little Monte Carlo. This was where the Dun Glen once stood. In the late 1800s, former Confederate Captain William D. Thurmond was surveying land for the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. He accepted, as payment, a plot of land on the north side of the New River. He knew that the area was rich in coal and lumber, and that the coming of the train would make this wilderness tract extremely lucrative. He established a small community, which he wanted to call Arbuckle. But when a post office was established, they rejected the name, and Thurmond was accepted instead. The 25-room Thurmond Hotel was built in 1891. Thurmond was growing. But William Thurmond was a staunch Baptist, and his town was a dry and sober one. No alcohol was served at the hotel, or anywhere in town for that matter. Enter Thomas Gaylord McKell. McKell had married Jean Dunn in 1870, and her father had given them 12,500 acres on the south side of the New River. He had quietly added to this property and made a small fortune, leasing out his land to coal mining operations. When McKell negotiated with the Chesapeake in Ohio to build a bridge across the river, it set up Thurmond as a switching station, or, as we might call it today, a hub. Smaller coal trains came in on the spur lines from the mines, 
and were combined into larger trains, which would then be transported out of the mountains and off to market. This meant that Thurmond would be an ideal place for local coal barons to meet. McHale knew this was coming and started construction of the Dunn Glen Hotel, named for his wife, Jean Dunn. The Dunn Glen was like nothing else coal country had ever seen. It was four and a half stories high and had a hundred rooms. Each room was rented for $2.50 a night, a week's pay for a coal miner. A huge wraparound veranda encircled it. The main floor had an expansive lobby, a bank, a grocery, a dry goods store, a drug store, a shoe store, and a mortuary. There were also fine restaurants, ballrooms, and a huge gambling hall with every game imaginable. Fresh seafood was brought in daily from the Chesapeake Bay. The finest liquors were served, and bands came in from as far away as Cincinnati. As one patron noted, they had napkins and tablecloths. Parties often lasted all night. The adjoining red light district of Ballyhack was booming. On weekends, miners would come in on the coal trains to collect their pay, and gamblers and prostitutes would ride in on the passenger trains to relieve them of it. At its peak, 15 passenger trains a day stopped in Thurmond and brought as many as 95,000 passengers a year. The permanent population peaked at 462, but the transient population was much higher. During the first two decades of the 20th century, Thurman handled more freight than Richmond, Virginia, and Cincinnati, Ohio combined. In fact, they produced 20% of the entire CNO Railroad's revenue. Money poured into Thurmond, and there was the Dun Glen to absorb as much as possible. It was the perfect meeting place for the coal barons of Fayette and surrounding counties. One mining transaction had the buyer write a check in the Dun Glen for $1,250,000 to buy a mine, an unimaginable sum back then. In another story, a coal baron lost a mine in a poker game. In a third story, which I've read dozens of times, couldn't find a primary source for, but still like and will therefore pass on, even if it's just a legend, the Dun Glen hosted a record-setting poker game, which lasted for 14 years. Along with all that money and vice, lawlessness was sure to rear its ugly head as well. And Thurman was often called the Dodge City of the East. The only difference between Hell and Thurmond, it was said, was that a river runs through Thurmond. When Prohibition came in 1914, the Dun Glen took a hit, but I doubt it dried up completely. World War I, the building of the roads, diesel engines, and the loss of profitability of the mines would all cause Thurmond to decline. Eventually, most of the mines would close. Today, rail traffic still flows through Thurmond, and even the Amtrak passenger train Cardinal stops there a few times a week en route from Washington, D.C. to Cincinnati. The population of Thurmond hovers around five people, making it one of the smallest towns in the country. The National Park Service has taken over much of Thurmond and expertly interprets the exciting past of this big little town. But the Dun Glen didn't see any of this. On the night of July 22, 1930, faulty wiring, or 
perhaps something more sinister, would bring down this infamous hotel, and the Dun Glen would die how it lived, on fire. When the last breath of life is gone from my body and my lips are as cold as the sea. Growing up in Washington, D.C., you become abundantly aware that in the event all hell breaks loose, you are entirely too close to ground zero. I don't know if everyone in the city has a plan, but after 2001 at least, we sure did. Our plan was always to open a bottle of champagne, hold each other close, and hope for the best. But we always knew there must be a different plan for the president and Congress. And there is. Since I don't have top-secret clearance, I can't tell you what that plan is today. But from 1962 to 1992, the plan for Congress was to head directly to the town of White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia. That's right, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, a town whose current population is about 2,500. More specifically, they were heading to the Greenbrier Hotel, where, for 30 years, a top-secret bunker was kept at the ready, right under people's noses, sometimes in plain view. The Greenbrier traces its history to 1858, when a hotel named the Grand Central, but more commonly called the White, or the Old White, was built. In 1910, the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad purchased the property and built an even bigger 250-room hotel, which is the main building we find there today. In 1913, the name was changed to the Greenbrier, after the neighboring county. The Greenbrier has hosted 26 U.S. presidents in its time, as well as dukes, duchesses, princes, princesses, prime ministers, and countless celebrities. It served as the site for the 1956 North American Summit Conference, and even hosted a heavyweight bout between Evander Holyfield and Sherman Williams. The guest we're most interested in for this story was Dwight David Eisenhower, who went on to be president, but first visited during World War II, when the Greenbrier had been commandeered and was serving as a U.S. Army hospital. After the war, as the world moved into the atomic age, Eisenhower decided that a bunker was necessary to protect the government in the event of nuclear war. His thoughts turned to the Greenbrier, which sat nestled in the mountains just outside the fallout zone and easily accessible by railroad. A deal was struck with the owner, and Project X was born. Project X, the bunker at the Greenbrier, was built between 1958 and 1961 at a cost of $11 million. It cost an additional $3 million to build the West Virginia Wing, 88 luxury hotel rooms that served as cover and sit directly on top of the bunker. The walls of the bunker are five-foot-thick steel-reinforced concrete throughout with three entrances protected by 18 to 30-ton blast doors. The door we entered through on our tour of the bunker led to the exhibit hall, which would host car shows and trade shows, but would convert quickly to the command center if necessary. That door sealed, locking the bunker in and the general public out. Immediately off of the exhibit hall are two suites, one each for the leaders of the Senate and House of Representatives. 
Also opening off of the exhibit hall are two auditoriums, which were used for conferences and meetings. The Mountaineer Room seats 124, and the Governor's Hall seats 474. I guess using the exact numbers of 100 on the Senate side and 435 on the House side would have been a little too much of a clue. Someone might have pieced it together. Leaving those rooms, you enter into the non-public sector of the bunker. Here you would find 18 dormitories. Each could sleep 60 people. There was a 6,000-square-foot clinic, which included an operating room, intensive care unit, a dental unit, and a nurse's station. There was also a pharmacy, meticulously updated with each congressman's prescriptions, including eyeglasses. Each election caused a major reorganization, with new dorm assignments and prescriptions to be filled. In addition, there was a 7,500-square-foot cafeteria and kitchen, which could serve 400 in one sitting. In an emergency, they would have to eat in three shifts. The food was a combination of dry and canned food and fresh food brought in daily from the Greenbrier kitchen. As that fresh food was cycled out, it went into the employee meals at the hotel. A massive power plant supplied all necessary electricity, air, and water using huge generators, pumps, air filters, ducts, pipes, and hoses. Three 14,000-gallon diesel tanks and three 25,000-gallon water tanks were kept at the ready. In the event of an emergency, communication was essential, and it seemed no detail was overlooked. Telephone rooms, a TV and radio studio, and audio recording booths were all there. There were even massive photos of the White House and Capitol that could be used as the backdrop for televised briefings to give the appearance that the congressmen were still in Washington. In the event that that shelter were activated, Congress would be directed to the Greenbrier by plane, train, or road. They would be allowed to bring one staff member with them into the bunker. Upon arrival, they would be handed a canvas bag into which they would place all of their belongings and then drop it down a chute directly into the incinerator. They would proceed naked into the decontamination chamber, where they would be sprayed down from head to toe. Then they would be handed fatigues, a bed assignment, and whatever prescriptions they may need, and they would proceed into the bunker. Maintaining this facility in a state of constant readiness was no small task. It required 70 full-time staff members to pull it off. These people operated under the cover of a company called Forsyth Industries, which was, on the surface, in charge of television and telephone repair for the resort. They wore Greenbrier uniforms and were required to blend in with the staff and the community. Over time, Project X became Project Casper, and finally Project Greek Island. It continued in secret for 30 years. It may have continued indefinitely, but... On May 31, 1992, going off of a tip from a still-unnamed source, Ted Gupp broke a story titled The Ultimate Congressional Hideaway for the Washington Post magazine. Gupp argued that in an age of missiles and more advanced warfare, the bunker was obsolete. Congress agreed and began the three-year decommissioning process immediately, and their evacuation plan has, I'm sure, been diverted elsewhere. The Greenbrier still stands and is still a grand resort in southeastern West Virginia. The bunker is now open for tours, which I can highly recommend. 
Like so many of that time, she answered her country's call to duty and served faithfully and quietly until her service was no longer needed. And now, she can open all her doors, breathe in that beautiful mountain air, and enjoy a long retirement in the heart of the Allegheny Mountains. And that will bring this episode of American Anthology to a close. Thanks for coming along for the ride this week. Music tonight came from the wonderful people who have performed the Country Store Opry for the last 50 years. It was my great pleasure to see their last show of the year out in Franklin, and they were wonderful. Background music comes from Kevin McLeod over at Incomtech Music. Sound effects come from the great folks over at freesfx.com. Our theme music comes from the incomparable Memphis Slim. Next time, more stories from West Virginia as I wrap up my visit for now. So until next time, remember, the road goes on forever. I've traveled the country over, stopped in each and every.